I was quite safe. That is why the lion kept on my left. He was between me and the edge all the time. This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode 53, The Horse and His Boy, Part 2. Good morning, everyone. Pints for Jack is your favorite weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where Andrew, Matt, and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. And so far this season, we've read The Four Loves, A Severe Mercy, and we've had an Ecumenical Month and an Apologetics Month. But today we're finishing off our Narnian Chronicle of the season, the book which Lewis said was about the calling and conversion of the heathen, the horse and his boy. And it's said that behind every great man is a woman rolling her eyes with a PhD. And so once again, we are joined by Dr. Kristen Ditchfield. I love it. It's not a PhD. <laughs> in. Yeah, we're both getting She Kristen has already finished her degree at Northwind uh, Seminary, uh, and we will be joining them for their Oxford pilgrimage this summer. Uh, here we may even be able to get up the uh, the Maudlin Tower, and I'm about halfway mm. through mine. So, yeah, <laughs> he's still a little sore about that. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get there eventually, Andrew. <laughs> now, although part one of this series was posted a couple of days ago, we are recording these episodes back to back, so we still have the same drinks. I'm still enjoying my Rabadash. As you can see, much like in Narnia, time moves very strangely here at Pints with Jack. <laughs> Before we move forward, does anyone want to say anything else about the Horseness Boy? I guess just for listeners who went to the first one, you know, I thought we brought in a lot of really wonderful points, but I'm really excited for this part. This mm. is when it's just like, bam, 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 bam. And so buckle up, get ready, and uh, don't put this on two times speed. Yes. <laughs> And if, if I was going to sum up the spiritual themes of, of the horse and his boy in a single sentence, it would, or, or just a phrase, it would be God at work behind the scenes. Mm. And here's where the curtain starts to lift and we begin to see where Aslan has been at work all along. I would say focus on the family. There's so much twinning. There's so many familial relationships, being part of the family of humans or the family of all created beings. And this is coming at a crucial time for Lewis. Um, Minto is beginning to really decline in 1950. And I think that by the end of the year, she's committed to a nursing home and uh, and then dies in the following year. Lewis is going through some enormous loss. Warney is struggling with his alcoholism. The Inklings have stopped meeting. Uh, Lewis called himself not just tired, but cab horse tired. Uh, he's lost a number of elections um, to professorships that would have you know, increased his time off and his prestige and his salary and cut his workload. Um, and so he's really weary. And so I think that some of the longing that we talked about in the first episode is maybe evidence from what's going on in Lewis's own life. I'd just say, get ready for um, exalting the humble and humbling the exalted. Absolutely. Well, we're all working on the same drinks, as David mentioned. Uh, Kristen went down and brewed me a, a fresh cup of hot cinnamon spiced tea. Uh, I think she's switched to uh, soda water. What is the raspberry lime? So, and, but we do need to toast Deborah Bertain. And Deborah, we toast you, praying that your family relationships, troubled, strained, blessed, redemptive, will all uh, find resolution in our Savior. And so we say cheers to Deborah. Cheers. Cheers. Is this Deborah one or Deborah two? I think this is Deborah two. 
Ah, I want to ask Anonymous if they would maybe pick a Narnian name for themselves. I mean, Puddleglum or... I mean, what's more Narnian than a Nani Mouse? (laughs) (laughs) It's like an Anarnian Mouse. I mean, my goodness. Yeah. A Narnian Mouse. (laughs) A Narnian Mouse. There we go. Come on. Please, you know, remain in your in in your anonymity if you wish, uh, receiving our gratitude. But if you want to have some fun with it, uh, we're we're certainly always down for some fun. I still love Snort, Kristen. We have a person who literally <laughs> just they when they donated and filled in, they really just didn't want to put a name. So they just made up the name Snort, and so we were just constantly confused about Snort. And they're our top tier, so we did a a, a FaceTime. And and literally got to meet the person behind Snort. And now we know his we know his real name, but we just really love calling him Snort. Oh, that's great. I think wasn't yeah. Snort one of the orcs? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So where are we, David? Well, we have been following the adventures of Shasta, Aravis, Bree, and Twin, two humans and two talking Narnian horses. And last time we ended with Aravis and Lazaraline sitting in darkness where they'd been hiding and the Tisrock had just left the room. And now we begin chapter 9, Across the Desert. Lazaraline is shaken from the experience of nearly being caught and wants to abandon the whole plan, but Aravis forces her to continue. They part ways at the river, and Aravis heads to the tombs where she is reunited with the rest of her travelling companions. When she arrives, she tells them about Prince Rabidash's plan. They leave immediately, following the path which Shasta heard described by the raven Salopad. After a grueling journey, just after sunset on the second day, they find the valley and river. They refresh themselves with the water and fall asleep. They're on a journey on the second day. They come to a valley and a river. Gosh. <laughs> I didn't put it there. You didn't put it there. Oh, it's too early in the episode. That was a good one, Andrew. I'll drink to that. And never, ever too early. Well, I was actually going to ask you guys what you make of the friendship between Aravis and Lazaraline, and particularly their farewell, because Aravis basically forces Lazaraline to go on. She says, okay, we're, we're going to the garden, or I'm just going to scream and we'll be caught and then you'll be in trouble. Uh, but they do have quite tender words for each other when they do part ways. Well, you know, I think uh, Aravis is, uh, you know, she's already... What I what I gather from that is she's already focused. She's her her concentration has moved. She's now making it a priority to get back on mission, be reunited. It's there's suddenly a new sense of urgency because they found out about this plot, and so she's doing what she has to do. She's a woman who gets it done, and she's focused, laser focused. But then right before she leaves, she suddenly realizes, wait a minute, I've put this friend of mine. We had something once. We were friends once. This is somebody who's done something for me that at great risk, I've been kind of rude and abrupt. Let me pause. I mean, this is the process I go through sometimes in my friendships of, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me remember who this person is and and treat them with the love and kindness that they deserve and that I would want to be treated with. Even though my mind is on other things, I'm already moving on. Wait, let me pause and and appreciate this person and express love for them because she may never see her again. And this is probably goodbye. Mm-hmm. And and let's make it a good farewell. Well, and maybe she's stung by by the charge Lissarlene levels at her. She says, oh, you're so unkind. Oh, you are unkind. Um, and kindness, as we mentioned last time, is kinship. And I think that Erevis really recovers herself and 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 acknowledges her, her kinship. Um, and she says, goodbye, and I thought your dresses lovely. 
and I think your house is lovely too. I'm sure you'll have a lovely life, though it wouldn't suit me, right? And so this is in some ways the opposite of the added, the generous, this is a generous attitude, which is the opposite of Orwell's attitude, right? Towards uh, towards Psyche with all of her, her fine houses and her and her fine clothes. Close the door softly behind me. Uh, you know, that might not be a, a bad epitaph, epitaph or... <laughs> <laughs> or a way to or some final words, close the door softly behind me. So I think that she does recover herself. And I've always admired Erebus. I think that she she really kind of gets to the heart of things. And I, I appreciate her for that. We joke that Andrew has his icons uh, all over the place and I have mine, but most of mine are Funko. Um, and I, 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 I collect fairy tale heroes that are gutsy and strong, um, brave women. And I wish they made one of Erebus because she's one of my favorites. And, and I would love to have, uh, have that as one of my icons. Well, and you see, you see in Redival this kind of same shallowness. And ultimately, Redival has a charge against Orwell for not loving her. Uh, even though she was different. And and I think Erebus ends up loving her in this kind of redemptive way. So, And I, honestly, I'd love an icon of Quinn because at the end when she has the conversation that she can't go on, but she feels like, you know, sometimes there's a little bit extra juice in you if X, Y, Z, humans on your shoulders, or you're doing it for Narnia. And honestly, it just made me love Quinn even more. Yes. I mean, there's just, there is that, I don't know. She just always somehow says the right thing at the right time in here. It's like, yeah, I think we can go a little further. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned that passage and I have a big asterisk next to it in, in my uh, copy of horse and his boy, because it's one of the most profound lines I think of that has spoken to me time and time again, it, almost like a proverb. Lewis makes this observation as the narrator right after when points out, she speaks some gentle truth. Lewis says, one of the worst results of being a slave and of being forced to do things is that when there is no one to force you anymore, you find that you have almost lost the power of forcing yourself. Uh, Andrew was just showing me he's got that uh, highlighted too. I think about in my life how many things I do because I am forced to. And then when I don't have anyone driving me, when I don't have the deadline, when I don't have someone forcing me to, where is my self-discipline? Where is my resolve? Wow. You just hit it. I didn't realize that connects to the end of that. I mean, oughtn't we be able to do more even now that we're free? It's all for Narnia. So essentially what you're saying is when you're a slave, and let's even just connect this, get out of the book for a second. Um, before you surrender your life to Christ, when you're a slave to the world, it's like your drive is success, ambition, all this stuff. And then there's a the thought of like, oh, if you no longer have that, will you lose your drive? It's like, no, your drive is going to be, that was like a slave drive. Now you're about to want to live life for the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And, and, and ironically, like you don't, you no longer have that drive per se. I, I think in my own life a little bit of, uh, you don't have that drive for success, but you also, you actually almost want to be better than you thought you could be for the kingdom and to be able to advance the kingdom. And it's like a different kind of drive. Yes. It's not exterior, like an exterior scorecard telling you what to do. It's an interior one um, that's driving you because you, you want to do it for the kingdom. I never actually really realized that freedom thing, slave thing until now. And when we read the Screwtape letters, we saw that Screwtape wants to take away agency from the patient. Mm. The ultimate goal is just to get him just to be staring at the fire, you know, it's gone out, and just be utterly drained of agency. To, at the very end of his life, to be able to say, I did neither what I ought to do or even what I wanted. Right. 
Well, I'll use a silly example from my own life, but uh, one time I, I lost my mind completely and signed up to walk a half marathon. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason that I did it, though, was because I needed a goal for to just exercise for health and wellness wasn't getting me out of bed in the morning. And so I thought, well, I'll sign up for this race and then I've invested some money and time. It's, it's a goal. Well, do you know what kept me training for that first one over and over and over was the fear of not finishing, the fear of having spent all this money and told everybody I was gonna do it and not been able to do it. Without that fear, um, sometimes it's a gift because without that fear, without that motivation, um, I wouldn't have put on my walking shoes day after day and I wouldn't have accomplished what I did. Sometimes I needed something like that driving me, but ultimately, our goal is to get what to where Matt is talking about, where it's not fear that drives us, but a purer motive, a, a, a truer motive, a more noble motive. I want to do this because God has called me to. I want to do this because it's my choice. It's my freedom to do this. And for all the good reasons um, that I sometimes don't motivate me quite as much as, as the heart. <laughs> well, and I have to admit, my wife is full of nobility and purity, but she also now doesn't do it for fear. She does it for the bling. <laughs> <laughs> I, if I'm going to exercise, I want a medal for it. <laughs> I think of, I think when you were saying that, it just makes me think of my favorite saint of all time, St. Maximilian Colby. And when I read his book, A Man for Others, and I highly recommend it, well, it wasn't his book, but it was about him. He just had this gift of, he would barely sleep if he was sick. He would still minister to people every penny he wanted to put back into the kingdom. So he would literally sleep on uh, straw rather than having any sort of mattress, like just the extremity he went for the kingdom and just had this supernatural strength, which was a saint-like strength and an interior motivation that was beyond anything I've ever witnessed. Nothing stopped him. It was like all about spreading the message of Christ to every person possible. And at its peak, the magazine he started, the print magazine reached a million people a month, which is massive back then. Just like an incredible story. Wow. You know, Walter Hooper told me that Lewis's motto was, when in doubt, give more, mm -hmm. right? If he was in doubt whether or not he should answer the letter, even though he hated writing letters two hours a day, when in doubt, answer the letter, give more. Well, one of, one of the things, give more is, is the goal. One of the things that I love so much about Horse and His Boy, as we'll find in the next chapter, is that when we cannot come up with the motivation on our own, when we cannot reach that nobility that we aspire to, sometimes God in His mercy provides what we need, even if it has to come the hard way, even if it's painful, He will give us what we need, that push to get us to the next place. The holy butt kicking. Yes. And, amen. I, I received quite a few of those. <laughs> wow. That's a good way of phrasing that. I mean, I, I it makes sense now. I mean, reading the chapter and the scratching the back, which we'll obviously get to, but like, whoa, that is so true. The providing the motivation. I never really thought about that. And I've got to say in this chapter, Lewis's section in the desert is fantastic. It puts me in mind of when I've run half marathons, when I'm doing something that I just want to be over and it just won't end. Yes. Uh, and even even like Anakin, Shasta hates sand at the end of it because, you know, it's coarse and rough and irritating and it gets everywhere. Or in his case, in particular, it's really hot. And because he's been barefoot this entire time, at some point he just can't even put his feet on the desert floor. Yeah, it's it's gripping, isn't it? And the games that we all play when we're trying to when we're trying to get to the end of a very long journey, you know, looking for those signposts. Well, we're a little bit farther. Well, it seems a little closer. Yeah, it's very vivid. I mean, Lewis is a master storyteller. 
And to connect this all into the four loves, at the end of it, they finally come to water. And Lewis spoke about need love that people have for water when you are absolutely parched. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, and well, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) Forget the water, Andrew. Good grief. It's the water with the parching (laughs) going down to the great river and the, yeah, I'm sorry. And then kneeling at the, yes, absolutely. On to chapter 10, the Hermit of the Southern March. The group cross the Arrow River into Arkhamland. Looking back, they see Rabidash's army in the distance, and the horses begin to gallop. A lion begins to chase them, and they increase their speed even more than they thought possible. When the lion has nearly caught Aravis, Shasta jumps off Bree's back and runs back to face it. After slashing at her back, the lion then runs away. All of them enter the home of the Hermit of the Southern March. He tells an exhausted Shasta where he is to run to find King Loon, and in the meantime, the hermit cares for the wounded Aravis and the spent horses. The next day, Aravis visits the horses. Bree is in low spirits, humiliated by the fact that he fled from the lion while Shasta ran back to face it. He says that he has lost everything and announces that he will return to Kalormen to be a slave. The hermit tells him that the only thing that he has lost is his self-conceit. <laughs> we have an entire episode on this. This yes. part right here. <laughs> yeah. You know, I had the privilege of sharing a devotion at the C.S. Lewis conference in England, uh, Oxbridge, a couple of years ago. And mm. the theme that I chose was this chapter from The Horse no and His way. Boy. That was the first time I was ever invited to speak there. And uh, if I got I got one shot, this is what I want to share. Um, so, yeah, this this line right here, again, uh, it, it piggybacks on the one that I just shared. And Bree now discovered, when the lion roars, Bree now discovered that he had not really been going as fast, not quite as fast as he could. Shasta felt the change at once. Now they were really going all out. You know, he thought he had been doing his best. I think about how many times I say to him, oh, I'm working as hard as I can. This is so tough, right? And sometimes I hear the lions roar. I get that medical test result. I get that email from my editor reminding me of the deadline. I have some confrontation or experience in my life where the lion is roaring and it gets my butt in gear. I suddenly realize I've not been doing quite as much as I thought I not been working quite as hard. Maybe there's another level, but that's a mercy. That is God's grace all over the place that in his love, he provides the discipline and the motivation that we need. Mm -hmm. Certainly both horses were doing, if not all they could, all they thought they could, which is Mm -hmm. not quite the same. (laughs) Very Scrutapian, you know, and so yes, when in doubt, give more, and so the Lord will will certainly provide. And there is that passage in Mere Christianity where Lewis says, "You never know what you can really do until you have to." Mm -hmm. Well, and and you you see it in Ransom all the time in Paralandra, where he has to fight uh, the Unman, he has to fight Weston, and he does far more than he ever thought that he could. Uh, even when it comes to a, a middle-aged paunchy professor resorting to fisticuffs. Um, so yeah, I mean, the theme kind of comes throughout. And I think that you see it in Lewis's own life. He's cab horse tired, but he's still caring for his brother, caring for his adopted mother, still tutoring his students. And, you know, it's, I think that there's some, some autobiography here too. I had a lot of parts of this I really liked, but I'll keep them shorter. First one, this made me think of Shasta being the one that jumps off the horse, 
like the least like battle ready person, the least mm-hmm. any sort of experience to go back. Reminded me so much of Captain America. You guys remember <laughs> that scene when he throws the grenade there and he's scrawny and weak and everyone runs away, all these big, tough, brave men, and the weakest one decides to jump on and sacrifice himself. Yes. One of my favorite scenes in like a movie. Um, I just uh, that made me think of that Shasta. But I really liked afterwards this part here where it said Shasta's heart fainted at these words for he felt he had no strength left. And he writhed inside, writhed, writhed, writhed. Never heard that word before. Inside at what seemed the at what seemed the cruelty and unfairness of the demand. This is when he's like told he's got to go. He had not yet learned that if you do one good deed, your reward usually is to be set to do another and harder and better one. But all he said out loud was, where is the king? Just like, I'll do it. That will be done. <laughs> I mean, he's like, he already does this incredible deed. He's exhausted. He's faint. And you would think, oh, my goodness, you can just just take a break, rest, relax. But it's like, no, he's getting called up to more, further up and further in. Ooh, what's that, Andrew? Yeah. Well, it's a. I had highlighted that part. And, it, and my love it. is obedience, the tasks of discipleship and the shaping of the will. And so it's training. And Lewis says in Mere Christianity that the winning of a hill today may someday lead to the winning of a greater campaign in the battle. I mean, I'm I'm paraphrasing it poorly. But yeah, it's that, that little bit that we do today. And sufficient to the day is the trouble they're in. And sufficient to the day is the task at hand and the strength that God will give us to complete it. Now I have in my notes the two scriptures from First Peter that say, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial that you are suffering as though something strange is happening to you. <laughs> now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine. Ooh. So Shasta's faith is being proved genuine. I love that you brought that out, Matt. This this is a, a maturity signpost for him of, of learning and growing in maturity and being even greater tests. When you pass uh, when you pass a hard test, the reward is to get a, a harder test because mm. you're ready. We Matt, you and I just talked a couple of days ago about that phrase that Lewis had when his lectures were poorly attended. And this untoward thing happens to him. And he said, well, it must be frightfully good for me, you know, to say yes, even to the trial. And that's what Lewis comes to at the end of the great, uh, uh, at the end of grief observed. He says, either way, we're for it. I don't know if this is God being not powerful enough. I don't know if this is God being, you know, being cruel, but either way, I'm for God. I'm, I say yes to it. And, and God can do an enormous amount with that small, small yes, even the great divorce. You know, I've seen even such embers be blown into full flame, right? Any any small yes. And we see the, the biggest of the yeses, you know, in Our Lady, the yes of of Mary in this timid way. I mean, in, in some ways she echoes Shasta here. Um, the, the dean of our seminary, when Malcolm Guite was, was uh, visiting, uh, brought up a poem that I've since found by Gwyneth Lewis called The No Madonnas. And it's a poem about all the women in all these different cultures who said no to having the incarnation. Whoa. And uh, so that small yes is incredibly powerful. Does that mean all of the women who foreshadowed Mary are (laughs) pre-Madonnas? Wow. Wow. No, no. They were horribly out of vogue. (laughs) 
Oh. And see, look at, you, you know, look at David making of her a material girl. You know. <laughs> <laughs> You're a girl. Wow. Well, hey, we have our spiritual girl here in in Huyn, right? <laughs> wow, nice segue. We did. Yeah, <laughs> that was, a, well that was a very Batesian segue. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I love Matt. You've been reminding us over and over um, as we've talked about this about the theme of pride and humility. And here again, we have Bree. Bree gets his comeuppance, right? He is completely humbled, and the scales fall from his eyes. He gets to see who he really is for all his bluff and bravado. This is who he really is. And he has an opportunity, though. Proverbs 15 tells us, you know, that the one who listens to a life-giving rebuke will be at home among the wise. Will Bree listen to this rebuke? Will he respond? It can be redemptive if he will receive it and if he'll allow it to make him a better horse. Hmm. And listeners, the the part Kristen's referring to, when the line came, Bree kind of didn't actually step up as this, this war horse. And so I actually want to read a few lines of it because I just think yeah. they're a really powerful area. I shall never see Narnia, Bree said in a low voice. Aren't you well, Bree, dear? Bree turned around at last, his face mournful as only a horse can be. I shall go back to Kellerman. What? Back to slavery? Yes, slavery is all I'm fit for. How can I ever show my face among the free horses of Narnia? I, who left a mare and a girl and a boy to be eaten by lions while I galloped all I could to save my own wretched skin. Mm. And then later, the hermit says, my good horse, you've lost nothing but your self-conceit. He says a little bit earlier, I didn't read, he thought he lost everything. Um, in the end, he lost probably the best thing he could lose, his self-conceit, the hermit, the wise hermit says. And so I, I that whole part, I starred, I underlined. I mean, literally both of my pages, I think, are just full of underlines. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's. It, I was looking over Kristen's chapter in her book, Family Guide to Narnia, and she doesn't have this reference, which always makes me feel, I'm sure she thought of it. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to but hear this. Slavery is all I'm fit for. How can I ever show my face among the free horses of Narnia is a clear echo of the prodigal son, right? I'm no longer oh. worthy even to be, I'll go and be a slave in my father's house. But wow. it's not the prodigal son. The prodigal meaning spendthrift. It's the prodigal yeah. father. It's God's spendthriftiness with his grace. And then I love this conclusion. It sounds so like Lewis. It's at the very end of the chapter. You'll, it doesn't follow that anyone that you'll be anyone anybody special in Narnia, but as long as you're nobody very special, you'll be a very decent sort, sort of horse on the whole, taking one thing with another. And so there's your, your humility again. And what does our Lord say when, when you've done your duty? Say, oh, I'm just an unworthy servant. I've simply done my duty, right? Mm. Um, and it's up to the Lord to give uh, dignity. You see it in Orwell, who does all of these marvelous deeds, and that, but she thinks that she's nobody special. Um, but then the priest comes and says, you know, she was the most noble of all the princes in the world. So it's it's in a lot of Lewis's books. Um I feel like we could literally end this whole episode on this chapter. There's just literally so much wisdom in this. Oh, we can't miss the next one, though. Oh, no. <laughs> You're right. It just builds. It just builds. This is, is my favorite chapter. chapter. Of yep. This is my favorite chapter of the entire Chronicles of Narnia. Chapter 11, Whoa. The Unwelcome Fellow Traveler. We are on that together, Yes. Dave. Before we get there, I just want to mention that one of my favorite books growing up apart from the Chronicles of Narnia, were the Prydain Chronicles by Lloyd Alexander. 
And he's got a figure, Medwin, who is also, I believe, because he acknowledges a debt to Lewis, but I believe modeled after this hermit of the Southern Marshes. So he's also a hermit and the the beasts come to him and find some safety. So uh, another way that Lewis's influence has continued. But yes, uh, my wife is brilliant on this chapter. I can't wait to hear why you think it's the best chapter in all of Narnia. Come on, David, bring us. (laughs) Okay, chapter 11, The Unwelcome Fellow Traveler. Shasta finds King Loon and his courtiers in a glade, and warns them of Rabidash's attack. King Loon is puzzled by Shasta's appearance, but gives him a horse and the party head back to Anvard. Unable to properly control his horse, Shasta soon falls behind and is lost in the mountain fog. At a fork in the road, he chooses the right-hand side, and then hears Prince Rabidash telling his men to kill all the males in Anvard, and then head on to Narnia to abduct Queen Susan. The Kalormen then take the other path. Shasta continues on the path he has chosen, but soon discovers that there is something moving alongside him. He asks who it is, and only receives cryptic replies. The voice asks Shasta to tell him his troubles, and Shasta recounts the story so far. It is then that the large voice reveals that there was only one line in all their adventures. The mist clears to reveal a shining Aslan. Shasta falls at his feet as the lion disappears before his eyes. Even just reading the summary just just gives me goosebumps. Yes. Falls at his feet. It's like that scene in The Chosen when Peter gets out of the boat and just falls at Jesus' feet. Well, David, tell us, why is this your favorite? I think this is my favorite because this is why this is my favorite book. Because we see that Aslan was there the entire time. As a kid, this was my least favorite Narnian book. But after I'd lived a little bit more life and re-encountered Narnia in my mid-twenties and gone through some difficult periods, it was when I looked back that I saw that the Lord was with me the entire time. And that is what you see in The Horse and His Boy, that everything that happened, that the Lord was still working with it. He was writing straight with the crooked lines and the, and the poor choices. And even through the difficulties, he was still ultimately in control. And you have this reveal of Aslan. You know, this is again another reason why this book should be read near the end, because you are used to Aslan turning up and you're aching for him to turn up and start setting things right. You know, people are suffering, people are going through difficult times. Where is Aslan? And it's at this point you have the turn and you find out that he was there all along, that he'd been protecting, he'd been comforting them all through the time. And now here we have, like most theophanies in the Bible, it takes place on a mountain and he reveals himself as that triple myself alluding to the Trinity, alluding to the I am sayings of Christ, Mm -hmm. that while Shasta is having a bit of a pity party, Aslan says, I do not call you unlucky. You remember back in the previous episode when I said about identity, it was Shasta said what he was called, he was called Shasta. And here's Aslan telling him, I do not call you unlucky because he had the great lion at his back the entire time. Yes, yes. You know what this reminds me of is the road to Emmaus. Hmm. when the disciples are so grieved and distraught about their own story and how they thought it was turning out. And a mysterious stranger comes and walks beside them and says, in essence, I don't call you unfortunate. (laughs) (laughs) I don't call you unlucky. I don't call you. And he begins to, the scripture tells us that Jesus began to explain to the downhearted disciples 
all that had happened, going all the way back to Moses and why it was all part of the plan. Mm. It was all necessary. Every bit of the heartache, the struggle, the suffering, it had a greater purpose. And then as he uh, explains this, he comes to the end and the scales fall from their eye. Well, he breaks the bread and their eyes are opened and they suddenly realize mm. that he has been with them all the time. Mm. Every step of the journey, it's been Jesus. And it's recognizing his presence. That's what you have in the breaking of the bread. He's under this new mode and they see that he has been there all along and he will still be with them and use exactly the same thing with Shasta. Yes. Well, and that's why we say be known to us in the breaking of bread. For me, the echo that stood out most when I was reading it was um, the threefold myself was Elijah, who's had this great triumph and then he's chased and he runs away. Uh, and and I have here in my margin the still small voice, the voice so deep and low it shook the earth, the voice loud and clear and gay. And then the third time myself whispered so softly that you could hardly hear it. And yet it seemed to come from all around you as if the leaves rustled with it. And this, of course, the echo of mere Christianity that the leaves of the New Testament rustle with the rumor that we will not always, that we will find our true selves, that we will become our true selves in him. Uh, later on in mere Christianity, he says, our true selves are waiting for us in him. And then he hears this voice of a ghost, but a new and different sort of trembling came over him, yet he felt glad too. And so there's that numinous experience when he actually hears Aslan. One of my favorite poems yes i do have a poem <gasps> wait you have more you have more than one that you can choose from and call it a favorite <laughs> wow hang on let me ring the bell let me, let, me, let me rephrase this my only poem i know and also my favorite one <laughs> okay all right this had better be one of my haikus <laughs> oh, it's one of the listener haikus probably we had some good ones sent in also it was on the very first journal I have filled full back in the early wow. days of my life, yeah. Footprints in the Sand. Yes, that's what it's called, Footprints. <laughs> you guys, have you guys read that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I need to double check that for a second. <laughs> do you guys know what, do you guys know what one that is? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. All right, I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so it's like, yeah, when you're, when you're walking the sand, you only see one pair of tracks and Jesus was with you the whole time. And the person's like yelling at him, why weren't you there when this was happening? Why weren't you there when this? A storm comes and you left my side. And in the end, and he's kind of selling him all his sorrows. Like, oh, here's all my sorrows, my really crappy life. And literally Aslan responds, like, it wasn't unfortunate. Like, I was there the whole time. This was me. And it's the same thing with the footprints. And so I did, actually. This was my favorite chapter, too. Yeah. No one ever saw anything more terrible or beautiful. Yeah. And I'm thinking of that, that poem, you know, millions of, of believers, I think, um, can relate to that. I mean, seeing God work in our lives in amazing ways. And, and um, I'm reminded, I actually have seen a, a little meme, uh, some artist drew uh, based on the Footprints poem. I don't know if you've seen it, Matt, uh, but it's got Jesus talking to the, the person and it repeats the last couple of lines. It was there that I carried you. And the person goes, and what's that over there? And and there's some long marks in the sand. And then that's where I dragged you. <laughs> I have not seen that. <laughs> like, there, there are a few where he's had to drag me, kicking and screaming. 
Which is like the equivalent of the scratching on the back. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, thank God he did. When when I refused to be carried, he dragged me where I needed to be. It echoes this the kind of reluctance and honesty of St. Thomas, right? Not St. Thomas the Scholastic, not St. Thomas Aquinas, but the, Thomas the Disciple. Hmm. We call him Doubting Thomas, but he's Honest Thomas. I mean, he's a little less polite than we are about our doubts. Uh, And it says there at the end, but after one glance at the lion's face, he slipped out of the saddle and fell at its feet. And that's when Thomas falls down and says, my Lord and my God, right? He couldn't say anything, but then he didn't want to say anything. And he knew he needn't say anything anyway. Um, Thomas's confession is the real confession that we should all come to. And so there's that that echo of the terrible and beautiful truth of Asin, who's been there all along for us, even there. Since we've mentioned poetry, I wanted to share a couple of lines from one of my favorites by Jared Manley Hopkins about seeing God in all of these different places. And Lewis says exactly the same thing in Mere Christianity. For Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. Mm. Absolutely. Yes, faces. (laughs) He's waiting for it. Waiting for it. <laughs> David was like, I literally <laughs> threw the softball. There's a Darren in this chapter and a Darren in, never mind. <laughs> chapter 12, Shasta uh, in Narnia. Well, hey, wait Hang a minute. <laughs> there's one thing we, sh- we should mention if, if before we pass pass through this chapter. There's a, It's a little side note, but it came up in the previous chapter too. And that's where, where Aslan tells both Shasta, he tells Erebus. Uh, and the others, no one has told any sto- anyone's story but their own. Yes. Mm. And sometimes we, we want to know what's going to happen to everybody else, good or bad. You know, we want God to or promise. control it. Right. We want God to promise that he'll do X, Y, and Z in our loved one's life or the people that oppose us. We want to be sure they get what they deserve. God's going to punish them, right? And and we think we know what everybody else's problem is. I, I you know, feel like I, <laughs> I tell my sister all the time, you know, people pay big bucks to hear what I think, and I'm giving it to you for free. Okay. <laughs> Great wise counsel. You should listen to me. <laughs> Being my little sister, she appreciates that so much. <laughs> but, you know, but Aslan reminds us, Jesus reminds us to keep our eyes on our own paper, keep our eyes on our own story. Um, it's none of our business what he's doing in somebody else's life. And we can trust him to work in their lives the same way he's working in our, or in a different way maybe than he's working in ours. But we can, mm. we need to, to stay focused on our own spiritual journey and let him deal with Uh, with our brothers and sisters. Mm. You know, David, you bringing up um, Hopkins reminds me of Carrie and Comfort, uh, which I first found through Holly Ordway, who was just on. And Hopkins struggled with despair and struggled with the darkness and the loneliness. He was a Jesuit priest. None of his poems were published before uh, before he passed away. And he says, I will not carry in comfort, despair, not feast on thee, not on twist, slack they may be, these last strands of man in me, or most weary cry, I can no more. I can, can something, hope, wish day come, not choose not to be. But ah, But, O thou terrible, why wouldst thou rude on me thy ring-world right-foot rock? Lay a lion limb against me, (laughs) right? And so he's, he's, he's 
calling on God, why would you be against me? But I can do something. I can I can wish day come. I cannot choose not to be. And here's that great theme. Even in Lewis's, I think that Lewis is writing encouragement for himself in a really dark and difficult time in his life. And I think that that's part of why this book echoes with so many people. Well, let's do chapter 12, Shasta in Narnia. Shasta realizes that he's arrived in Narnia. He drinks some water flowing from the footprint left by Aslan. He then heads downhill and meets a hedgehog, as well as some other talking beasts. After much dithering, a stag runs off to Ker Paravel to warn the kings and queens of Narnia of the invasion. A group of dwarves take Shasta home for breakfast and after a fine meal, he falls asleep. The next morning, a small Narnian army arrives, led by King Edmund and Queen Lucy, together with Prince Corin. Shasta apologizes to Edmund for allowing him to think that he was Prince Corin. Prince Corin's minder tells Corin that he's not allowed to participate in the battle, and they get into a fistfight. Corin then convinces Shasta to sneak into the battle with him. I feel like I got to start out with right in the beginning the river reference. It made me think of um, so it, it says apparently it was still very early in the morning. The sun had only just risen and had risen out of the forest, which he saw low down and far away on his right. The country which he was looking at was absolutely new to him. It was a green valley land dotted with trees through which he caught the gleam of a river that wound away roughly to the northwest. And it made me think of uh, a priest that played a big role in my life in college has this icon, Angie might like that icon, Mm -hmm. uh, that really just drives his ministry. And on the back, his verse that drives everything is John 7, 38, from his heart shall flow streams of living water. And so that was just a whole big thing. And honestly, that scene just made me think of that because it's coming from the Northwest, coming from that Northern area. And it's like the living water coming from our Heavenly Father. Yes. Mm. Those images of water, Eustace is baptized in the pool. Um, This is a bit of a baptism by dipping or by sprinkling. Um, And, you know, you can find it again and again. It's, It's everywhere. It is until we have faces where she kneels at the water and it refreshes her. You know, it's these these themes that Lewis is so deliberately using. We come back to, uh, you know, uh, another theme that we find in a lot of the Chronicles um, and that of being alert and on guard versus being complacent. Mm. And we find the creatures in Narnia have grown a little complacent in their security and their freedom. It takes a lot to to rouse them and get them to realize, wait, there really is something important going on here (laughs) beyond breakfast. You know, <laughs> we need- wait, wait, there can't be anything important going on beyond breakfast, uh, <laughs> except second breakfast. <laughs> well, it's an English breakfast, right? Um, it was, in fact, uh, was a delightful smell, the one he had never smelled before in his life. But I hope you have. It was, in fact, the smell of bacon and eggs and mushrooms all frying in a pan. Ah, oh, yes. <laughs> bacon and eggs. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah, they they almost miss out. They they have forgotten to stay on guard and alert. Our freedoms, uh, you know, are there. There's a cost and there's a responsibility, and they need to be alert. And and uh, eventually, thankfully, uh, they come to. It just reminds me a little bit too, um, you know, of that uh, scene in in Tolkien, and it's in forget which volume of the Lord of the Rings, where we're in this epic quest and there's danger and disaster on every side and the sense of darkness and doom is gathering. And then all of a sudden we run off in the forest and have an adventure with, what was his name? Tom Bombadil? Yeah. Yes. That's in the first book. Wait, That's in what? Fellowship. Yeah. 
it. Yeah. And there's there's great food too. Yeah, <laughs> porridge and cream and eggs and mushrooms and coffee pot. I don't know where they get coffee in Narnia, but whatever. Uh, and here's the here's the real tragedy. This is where I felt the most pity uh, for Shasta. Um, and the hot milk and the toast on the table, especially with Kristen and her family. It was all new and wonderful to Shasta, for calamine food is quite different. He didn't even know what the slices of brown stuff were, for he had never seen toast before. He didn't know what the yellow soft thing they smeared on the toast was, because in calamine you nearly always get oil instead of butter. Oh. oh my gosh! He had no idea what toast was. Wow, I mean, that means bad. he doesn't know what sourdough is. Oh yes. yes. <laughs> what about frying another egg or so, or a few more mushrooms? By the way, um, you can now get on iBooks, and I think maybe in print again too, uh, the Narnian Cookbook, the official Narnian Cookbook, hmm. and uh, there are marvelous recipes. There's a fantastic <laughs> recipe for mushroom soup. Um, and there's, uh, you can make your own Turkish delight. And so all of the food mentioned in Narnia is in that cookbook <laughs> and Douglas Gresham has approved it. So the Chronicles of Narnia cookbook, I highly recommend it. I love it. Now I want second or third breakfast. Okay. <laughs> I know I'm hungry now. Yeah. <laughs> Better eat before bed. But I, I do think that this chapter is really a nice change of tone. You get a little bit of comet relief, get some food before... Shasta gets swept up in the adventure again. It was what we said earlier. One good turn deserves another one being assigned to you. Right. Right. There is a little bit of rest for the weary. Mm. Yep. And this chapter also has that line where Queen Lucy says that Corin and Shasta are as like as two twins. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes. And Lucy's <laughs> key. <laughs> it is when I first recognized it, David. Oh, it's just- <laughs> Wait a minute. Yes. <laughs> oh, it's like, ah, oh, smack me across the head. <laughs> mm. uh, there's this kind of toss away line, but I found some spiritual comfort from it. Uh, just a page or two earlier from the one you just quoted, David. There are some things that take a lot of getting used to. And so that too can be a grace and a challenge, right? Yeah, Matt, did you notice that? Or Well, that just goes back to that kind of thing I was mentioning in the beginning that I noticed subtle things in here that were very much like great divorcian of acclimating yourself to truth to the kingdom to narnia and mm-hmm. it takes getting used to you know, if you've yeah. lived one way and you are letting your ego die and aligning your will with our heavenly father's will there's going to be some getting used to some stuff and it's yeah. going to be painful yeah. sometimes yeah well i think even lacerline um is uh it takes some getting used to by the way if you have the full color collector's edition you can see and i've got it highlighted oh Focus, focus. Well, you can't see because we're on the radio. Oh, that's well, that's well focused now. But there's a Mercury. There's a, a a soldier wearing a hat, a winged hat. So, and that's of course we owe again to Michael Ward. To Michael Ward. Cheers. 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 I'm all out. I'm all out. You said to have faces too many times. <laughs> Not nearly enough either. <laughs> Well, actually, the month that this is coming out, we will be having a patron event with Dr. Ward. We are going to be watching the Narnia Code documentary, and then he's going to be joining us for a live Q&A. Wonderful. And then we're going to take him out for a slap-up dinner, right? That's right. I I taught Andrew some British. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Cheers. Well, we'll certainly have you in our cups when we we do that with him. Well, I think let's go to battle. Mm. Chapter 13, The Fight at Anvard. 
The Narnian army heads into Arkenland. We learn that Queen Susan remained at Ker Paravel, and the army arrives at Anvard to see the Kalomen army using a battering ram against Anvard's gates. The Narnian army engages the Kalomen, and Shasta is notched from his horse. The narrative perspective then shifts to the Hermit, who is staring into his magical pool and describing the events of the battle to Aravis and the horses. We are told that the Narnians and Arkenlanders are ultimately triumphant. We then return to Shasta, who also discovers that his side is victorious, and he sees Prince Rabadash hanging by his chainmail from a hook in the castle wall. Rabadash is brought tied up into the castle. King Loon then embraces Shasta and brings him to Corin, and then asks those present, Now gentlemen, lock on them both. Has any man any doubts? And my kickoff question for this is, why does Lewis change the point of view? Andrew, you have thoughts. Yes. Um, I think that, and I, I noticed it earlier, um, I think that Lewis is changing points of view uh, like The Two Towers, which is being written at around this time. Um, I think that what we're seeing is different lines of adventures with different subgroups of characters in a, that's kind of an intercalary kind of approach. And so I think that that's at least part of where some of the influence comes. I'd love to hear what Diana Glyer would say, but that deliberate change of tone to let's follow this line for a couple of chapters. Now let's follow this line for a couple of chapters, which always makes me, anytime that happens when I read, it's like, oh no, Tolkien, I want to continue with Frodo <laughs> and Sam, but then no, 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 I want to hear what happens to the dwarves. Oh no, I want to hear what, what happens to Faramir or whatever. And so I think that that may be part of the narrative technique, but uh, what, are, what are y'all's thoughts? Are you referring to, by the way, when the Herbert kind of just explained it all? Yes, we cut from being told about what's happening to Shasta to being told about what the Hermit is saying from looking into the pool and seeing those same events. This is going to be a completely unscholarly view. Honestly, I got to the point and I was like, there always seems to be a battle that's super detailed in Narnia. I don't really need another battle. I felt like it was a quick way to describe it in like three pages and just be done with it. So it's not like 20 pages of like this firsthand account. Because I, I really did feel like the pace of the story was more about the truth being taught than the battle itself. And so personally, I was reading it and actually I was kind of a sense of like, oh, good. I don't have to go another 20 pages through a battle. I know that sounds terrible <laughs> to say, but I genuinely thought that. And I was like, this is a brilliant way to just get us through the battle to the truth. Well, Lewis's battles generally are pretty short. I'm, I remember the first time I reread The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and was stunned. It was like a page and a half, if that. I think I would point to Dr. Ward's thesis that if this is about Mercury, Mercury is all about things splitting up and coming back together. So the shifting of perspective is like us following the different streams that are ultimately going to converge again. Yeah, that's a good one. No, I think that that's certainly certainly true. And then you, we see that there are the other there are other brothers with King Loon. There's Dar and Darren, and so a lot of this a lot of this twinning and a lot of this kind of shifting of perspective. Um, See, and I, I just took Lewis at his word where he says, it's no use trying to describe the battle from Shasta's point of view because he understood too little of it and even his own part in it. <laughs> <laughs> I figured he switched narrators because you got Shasta doesn't know enough <laughs> his perspective, you know, but but yeah, those are those are great points. And the same thing happens in The Hobbit. Bilbo gets knocked out and we hear about right. the, the battle from someone that actually understood what was going on. Right. Yeah, I really think that, um, and I imagine that Tolkien provided some comfort for Lewis at this point, 
I think also that it reminds me of the comment in one of the battle scenes, I think, in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where the narrator says, I can't tell you more about what happens here, because if I did, the adults in your life wouldn't <laughs> let you continue reading this book. And that, to me, is another kind of kindness of Lewis. And I've spoken about it before. Lewis has these kind of narrator narrative asides and modern analogies. So right when things get really kind of hairy and scary, I think Lewis knows his audience and knows that parents are reading the book to seven, six, seven, eight, nine-year-olds as a chapter book at bedtime. And so when things start to get really scary, the narrator very often steps in and interrupts and then often has a, a kind of a modern analogy. So my favorite example is from Prince Caspian where Caspian's about to ride off into the wilderness to face the, you know, the, the unknown, you know, magical creatures. And uh, his wallet is on the floor. And the narrator says, the wallet is very much like your book bag, right? He addresses the youngster uh, with a modern analogy. And I think that that's uh, also kind of a shift in tone in order to, to offer kindness to the readers. Really minor sub point. I appreciated the coming back to Aslan and like the different kind of forms influencing. And when he describes the cats and he capitalizes mm -hmm. the letter C for cats, almost mm -hmm. like capitalizing his when you refer to Jesus or God, you know, the mm -hmm. cats being Aslan's influence in the, in the battle. Yeah. Yeah. Us lions, us lions, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, and I love to just, a, a, again, a, another little side note here is that we have a, in this battle, we have all these different creatures who are all have different strengths and skills. And each one is assigned a role that suits their their strengths and skills. And isn't that like the body of Christ? We don't all have the same talents or abilities or strength, but all of us have a part to play in the battle. Mm -hmm. All of us have a role. And so if we'll take up the position that's assigned to us, um, we can play our part and, and help bring about victory. Hmm. Well, look at look at Shasta. I mean, to some degree in the actual battle, he was kind of worthless, it seems like. Um, <laughs> but yet he's practically the human being that did save the entire city earlier. And he showed an incredible bravery with the uh, with the horses when the lion, or in, now in hindsight, Aston was chasing him. So like you see incredible bravery, but you know what? He's not the best swordsman <laughs> person and that uh, wasn't just that good, but he's still an incredibly brave person. Well, and, and Edmund the Just uh, in the previous chapter says, uh, Shaw, boy, no one doubts your courage, but a boy in battle is a danger only to his own side. <laughs> <laughs> And I guess, I mean, you know, at the very end of this chapter, it's the first time, I'm sorry, it's not the first time, but when we, we finally realize when he says a boy to break a father's heart and just realize the true identity of Shasta, I think that's goes back to what you had mentioned, David Reed one in the beginning that mentioned identity being a big theme here. Mm -hmm. I think that's just so cool coming from the most humble of beginnings, a father that's not really a father in the slightest, uh, no direction has a little bit of hope of this northernness, gets called in this journey and finds out he's a prince and eventually a king. It's incredible. And in true mercurial fashion, we don't get that story finished immediately. In the next chapter, we switch back to the other storyline. So we're now <laughs> yes. on to chapter 15, how Bree became a wiser horse. The morning following the battle, the horses and Aravis talk about leaving the hermit and continuing their journey into Narnia. During this conversation, Aravis asks Bree why he always swears by the lion, and Bree tells her about Aslan, although he doesn't believe he's a real lion. While saying this, Aslan appears and scares Bree. 
He tells him that he has been with them throughout their journey and reveals that the scratches Aravis received mirror the lashes given to the slave girl whom Aravis drugged. Afterwards, Shasta arrives and we find that he is now known as Prince Kor, the brother of Corin and the long lost son of King Loon. Aravis apologizes for her earlier rudeness. Kor tells her the story of how a centaur predicted that he would one day save Arkhamland and as a result was kidnapped by a traitor and was ultimately found by Ashish. Aravis is invited to live with Kor's family at Anvard and after a final roll from Bree on the ground, our travelers head towards Anvard. There's way too much in this chapter. Oh, <laughs> in the whole book. Oh, do not dare not to dare. I've heard that somewhere before. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have. I have. Andrew, you mentioned doubting Thomas earlier, and that's kind of Bree's doubts here about the nature of Aslan. And when Jesus comes to St. Thomas, it's, you know, touch me, see my wounds. I am flesh indeed. Because uh, he is spiritualizing him, I suppose we would say. You know, it's like, well, it can't be a real line in the same way that, well, God couldn't become a real man. Mm-hmm. Is that the docetis, docetism, mm-hmm. David? Yeah, the idea that Jesus was just just appeared as a human, but he wasn't. Right. Whereas Orthodox Christianity says, no, fully God and fully man. The fathers say what he didn't assume, namely our human nature, he didn't redeem. Therefore, he was fully human and he lifted us up and drew us into the Godhead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love right after that, after that scene that you're just describing a paragraph later, Aslan shows up and confirms, nope, I'm here, I'm real. In when... Best response the entire book. Ah. <laughs> Please, she said, you're so beautiful. You may eat me if you like. I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. I mean, that, that that's like the line of the book, in my opinion. I mean, that's just incredible, that response. I mean, that's even, that's even a more incredible response than falling on the knees that we see from Shasta. It's like, you can eat me. Take me. Whatever you want to do with me, the most extreme thing, I'm yours. Like devour. And, and we've talked about devouring love before. I mean, it's just. The loving and the devouring are the same. <laughs> it's, wait, it's waiting for Andrew <laughs> the devouring love. <laughs> it's like I don't even need to do the work. It just, <laughs> the, Maybe the it is his best book. References just do the work and just happen of their own accord. <laughs> we might be converted, Andrew. We might be converted. Never. <laughs> Stubborn old horse. <laughs> what, what, what did Christian say earlier about a wise man being corrected? And then if they yeah. take correction, they're wise, David? Only if he's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. I love it. Oh, and I love this, the same boat, you know, and it talks about the boat and the Lord Bar, and he seems to be at the back of all the stories. Of course, yes, he does. Yes. You know, there's a little parallel. You can make all kinds of biblical connections all through this story, but there's a little parallel here. I, you know, I, the question I ask children is, is there anybody else that we know of in the Bible who was kidnapped and sold into slavery for a greater purpose, who later was set free and rose to a position of power and prominence and saved their people, their family and their people. Yes. And so we Psyche. Have- <laughs> oh, wait, that's the wrong good book. 
Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we have parallels to Joseph here. Um, as mm. you mentioned, we have parallels to Thomas. Um, and we also have a parallel to the scripture in Hebrews um, that talks about the Lord's discipline. When Erebus has her own experience with Aslan, when she really meets him for the first time, and he talks about the discipline that he inflicted on her. Um, this is a pretty difficult concept in some places, in some circles, and I guess goes to your point, David, about why it might be better to read this when you're a little bit older and a little bit further along in the Narnia Chronicles. But Hebrews 12 tells us the Lord disciplines those he loves. Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And that's what it has the potential to do for Erebus and for Bree. I mean, the title of this chapter, How Bree Became a Wiser Horse. Mm -hmm. Will we receive the Lord's chastening, his discipline, and allow it to make us better? Mm. David, what's that one, that one quote from Lewis? It's either in one of his books or his letters, how Lewis treats his closest friends. How Lewis, are you thinking of St. Teresa when she shouts up at heaven after she's been knocked off her horse? Like, if this is how you treat your friends, it's no wonder you have so few. Ah, that's <laughs> the one I'm thinking of. Yes. <laughs> Kristen, I love the way that you explain that because in preparation for this, I listened to a number of other podcasts that go through this book. And people so often stumble in this chapter because they've been formed by the idea of God's grace, which is wonderful. But they view that as something entirely separate from his discipline. Right. That a good father is only going to shower us with gifts and will never discipline us, even if it is itself a grace. When I look back in my life, when I look at some of the times where I felt like the Lord has chastened me, that's been the point where I've grown. That's been the point when I've become mm -hmm. a wiser horse. Yes. Yes. It's one of the things, too, that um, I think people miss about judgment. You know, there's lots of talk about Romans 1 and 2 and God giving people over but he gives people over to judgment as an act of mercy. Mm. If I will not be educated and, and disciplined and, and obedient myself, the Lord will allow me to see the, the, the consequences of my behavior. And judgment is always an act of mercy, hoping that I will come to my senses and realize that I'm wallowing amongst the pigs, hungry for the pods, like the prodigal son, and come to my senses and realize, okay, well, I'll just... You know, I'll just go back and try to be treated like a servant. Some of his mercies are severe. Right. They are severe. And it is severe. We just finished Severe Mercy Month. And I wonder how much that echoed in Lewis's own ear uh, when he faced his own severe mercies. But God loves us too much to let us remain wallowing as we are because he has a greater destiny for us. And he gives us what we didn't deserve. You know, it's the robe and the ring and the feast even when we had already spent up all of our inheritance. And so uh, those acts of judgment are God's saying, I love you too much to leave you here. Let me make sure that, that you get to where you really can be, you, to be who you really are. I'm desperately looking for one of my favorite poems. I used to have it memorized when I was a teenager, um, but it's by Hannah Hernard. Um, I think it appears either in um, Hindspeed on High Places or 
the sequel, Mountains of Spices. But she talks about, can love be cruel? Can love be stern? Yes. You know, can love be jealous? Yes. Jealous as the grave. You know, God's love for us. He won't allow any idols to take precedence in our lives, Mm -hmm. to take priority. And he will do whatever it takes to cut those idols out, to root them out and to set us free. Um, He'll be, love will be stern to save. And uh, that's the line that comes to me right now. Um, But, uh, you know, just that concept um, of God's discipline being for our good. If we can hold on to that, uh, you know, it will, it will carry us far in our spiritual journey. Our, um, I just finished, you know, my seminary education and one of the uh, professors that I treasure the most, uh, Kate Sonderager, a fantastic theologian. She says in one of her volumes of systematic theology that the great sin and the great danger to which we are all prone is that of idolatry, of creating in our own hands something that can comfort or, you know, something that we can worship besides God. You know, it's love becoming a demon because uh, it has become a God. And idolatry, I, I wouldn't have thought of idolatry as my great sin or my great danger, but that's really it because it's what I create. It's the image that I worship, that I worship myself that's not the image of God. And Aslan's always trying to get us to exchange our vision of who we think God is for who God actually is. Yeah. Did you find the poem? I, I did. Do you mind if I read it to you? Go for it. Um, part of it is... Matt, it's a poem. <laughs> Kristen, does, it, does it rhyme? Does it rhyme? We need to ease him into this. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> I'll go take a restroom break right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We can cut this later. Uh, here it goes. Can love be terrible, my lord? Can gentleness be stern? Ah, yes, intense is love's desire to purify his loved. Tis fire, a holy fire to burn. For he must fully perfect thee, till in thy likeness all may see the beauty of the Lord. Can holy love be jealous, Lord? Yes, jealous as the grave, till every hurtful idol be uptorn and wrested out of thee. Love will be stern to save. Will spare thee not a single pain, Till thou be freed and pure again, and perfect as thy Lord. Can love seem cruel, O oh my Lord? Yes, like a sword, the cure. He will not spare thee, sin-sick soul, Till he hath made thy sickness whole, Until thine heart is pure. For, oh, he loves thee far too well, To leave thee in thy self-made hell. A Savior is the Lord. Mm, that's so good. Wow, that's incredible. All right. The problem is you guys have just read terrible poems to me up until this point in time. That's, I no, mean, it's that you have no taste and so they all seem terrible to you. That is incredible. I mean, that was like, see, see, the thing about that, what, what I always struggle with poems is honestly, I, I, I never understand half of what they're saying. That was like so much truth smacking across the face and wrapped in a beautiful way. That was incredible. Hmm. Well, and it's great divorce, right? It's the angel. Can I kill it? You know, and only by killing it can it ever rise and be the be my true servant. Mm. That's so good. I'm actually going to probably download that poem. Wow. Andrew found it for me. Mountains of Spices by Hannah Hernard. Mm. I love that. Well, let's take this home. 
with chapter 15, where we learn about another sin sick soul, Rabadash the Ridiculous. Oh, David, 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 we got we, 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 we got one more we got to do here, though, before we do that chapter. We got to at least acknowledge the, the humbling, because this is my favorite theme, of Erebus. When Shasta comes at the end and she sees Shasta in his glory and just how she has to apologize. She literally says, Shasta, I mean, core. No, shut up. There's something I've got to say <laughs> at once. I'm sorry. I've been such a pig. And I just love that. You know, Shasta is now raised up. There's a humbling. And then as we're going to see, which now this will let you segue right into your next chapter, like what I still love about this is you have the arrogant, you got the humble. And God, and Aslan in this case, but God does what he does, but they both can get in. They got to be humbled first, but they still both end up in a beautiful spot in the end. Yes. Now, it doesn't mean go become prideful because you're going to be feeling a little bit more pain before you do. It's better to come in humble. But I still love how there's a message of hope despite, because I think many of us can relate to the arrogance and we all have that in a certain way, shape or form. And it's like, is there any hope for us? It's like, well, if you're genuinely pursuing the Lord, yeah, he's just going to knock you off your horse. Mm-hmm. Well, I just find it comforting the fact that it's possible to be humble and still tell someone to shut up. (laughs) (laughs) David's like, I feel seen. Speaking of which, (laughs) chapter 15, Rabadash the Ridiculous. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) After being greeted by King Loon at Anvard, Aravis tells him of Shasta's bravery in facing the lion. After lunch, Prince Rabadash is brought out, and although they are merciful, Rabadash curses them and refuses the conditions of his release. Aslan then appears and warns Rabadash, who continues to curse, until he is turned into a donkey. This donkey is then sent back to Tashban and is told that he will return to his human form in the Temple of Tash at the Autumn Feast, but that if he strays further than 10 miles from the city, he will remain a donkey forever. The narrator tells us that Rabadash became an extremely peaceful Tisrock, since he could never go to war himself and he didn't want his generals gaining any glory. Kor, being the older brother, eventually becomes the king of Arkenland, and he marries Aravis. The horses also find mates and live long, happy lives in Narnia. Well, you know, this is a chapter that has a lot of really strong biblical parallels. And we I think we all have some some insights in this chapter, but if, if I can toss in a few, you know, there's such a great parallel here um, to the book of Genesis and God's conversation with Cain, where he confronts Cain and gives Cain an opportunity to make a different choice, make a better choice um, moving forward, uh, to repent of his sin and and choose do what's right. In Genesis 4, 6, and 7, God says, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. And to me, I just hear so many echoes of that in Aslan's conversation with Ravidash. Ravidash has the opportunity. Sin is crouching at his door. He can, he can still choose what is good and right. Um, but of course, he doesn't make that choice. Mm. And he ends up like King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4, mm. who uh, would not, not being willing to humble himself, being proud and arrogant. Remember, the scripture tells us that he lost his sanity. He became like a wild animal. He lived out in the fields outside his palace for seven years. Mm. And when he finally repented and acknowledged God's sovereignty, that's when his sanity and his kingdom were restored. Mm. Have a care, Rabadash, said Aslan quietly. The doom is nearer now. It is at the door. It has lifted the latch. I love that line. (laughs) Oh, yes. 
Oh, with the lovely, that's a Malcolm Guite poem, with the lovely lifting of a latch. Um, and then Rabidash re replies like Pharaoh, let the skies fall, let the earth gape, let blood and fire obliterate the world, but be sure I will never desist till I have dragged to my palace by her hair, the barbarian queen, the daughter of dogs, the, the hour has struck, said Aslan. Mm -hmm. It's important to know too that um, there's a great disservice in the English Bible. When Pharaoh hardened his heart and then God hardened Pharaoh's heart, you need to know that those are two completely different Hebrew words with completely different roots. And the, to translate them both the same is a real injustice to the mercy of God. Pharaoh, the Hebrew says, made his heart stupid. And God, the Hebrew says, reinforced Pharaoh's decision. And so those are two very different words and they should not both be translated hardened. So Rabidash hardens his own heart or makes himself stupid. And eventually Aslan having given him enough rope and it's not to hang himself, it's enough rope to climb up out of the mire that he has uh, thrown himself into. Aslan finally says, enough is enough. I can see that your heart will not change. I'm gonna force the issue because you've already decided where you're gonna go and nothing uh, like with the dwarfs in the last battle, nothing could change his mind. And he turns him into a donkey. And as we read in the four last this season, nobody could ever hate a donkey. <laughs> <laughs> I do like to imagine that the donkey in Shrek is actually Rabidash. <laughs> On another wild adventure. <laughs> and what's the great sin, according to chapter eight of book three of mere Christianity? The great sin pride. is pride. What's the devil's great sin? Pride and what can the devil not abide according to screw tape letters? The devil proud spirit cannot abide to be mocked. Mm. And so there's Rabidash adopting the great pride, and his punishment is to be ridiculous. Yeah. Mm. And if anyone's read Arabian Nights, you also have a donkey transformation there as well. Oh, well, and Last Battle is also a donkey transformation <laughs> of a slightly different nature. Yes, oh, yes. yes, absolutely. Um, but there's also, uh, at the beginning of this chapter, I was pointing out to Kristen, there's this great line that reminds us of the end of, of Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, maybe apes will grow honest, sister, said Edmund, mm. right? And that's shift, maybe. Um, so there's, there's echoes of the end. But throughout his trial, so to speak, you get to see the mercy of the Narnians, and you get to see why Edmund is now called Edmund the just yes. from his own experience, from his own experience of mercy, of his own redemption, he's willing to extend that to somebody else. Well, and it's what happens. It, it's what happens at the end of the previous book in the series is the voyage, or no, two books earlier is the voyage of the Dawn Treader, and Edmund has real compassion on Eustace, and Eustace began to be a better boy, right? And then we've got this chapter where it says how Bree became a wiser horse. And so this idea of compassion and improvement and even conversion happening at the hands of those who are compassionate because of their own difficulties and their own selfishness be, having been redeemed by Aslan. 
But it's a choice that we make because it's the opposite, isn't it, of the parable Jesus told about the unmerciful servant mm -hmm. who was forgiven of a great debt and then went out and, and prosecuted someone who owed him a small amount. I mean, we have a choice. We can remember the forgiveness and the grace that we've been given and we can extend that to others. And, and Edmund is a beautiful example of that. Or we can harden our hearts and treat others unmercifully. And Jesus is calling us to constantly remember his grace, mercy, and forgiveness extended to us, and then be agents or ministers of that grace to others. And I said at the beginning, this is my favorite book. Now, as a child, it was probably my least favorite. I think probably because there was a girl in it, and they're not getting yeah. married at the end. Uh, if I had seen The Princess Bride, I'd have probably have asked my mother, is this a kissing book? <laughs> <laughs> and this actually played a part in our own uh in our own wedding right that's right well we fell in love um we decided to announce our engagement, which is a pretty big deal. There were a lot of people who've been praying for both of us for a very long time. <laughs> and we combined two loves uh, that had a part in our story, um, C.S. Lewis and the horse and his boy. And then Jane Austen, I had said something the first time we met, I said something to Andrew about how Lewis uh, loved Jane Austen. And I recommended a Jane Austen book, which Andrew then read and texted me all the cleverest bits to show me that he was reading, which won my heart. <laughs> And so there's a line in Persuasion which says, they fell in love over poetry. Hmm. Uh, and of course, poetry was a part of our romance too. So we combined that line with the line from the end of The Horse and His Boy, where uh, Shasta and Erebus, they keep on quarreling, but they decide to get married so as to do it, uh, go on doing it more conveniently. Yeah. So that's what we said in our engagement announcement. We fell in love over poetry and we've decided to get married so as to go on doing it more conveniently. <laughs> <laughs> you could have supplemented it also with shut up and don't be an ass. <laughs> that came after the wedding. Yeah. My favorite Lewis quote. I'm thinking about that for my next tattoo. Or for my sermons. Yes. Well, as C.S. Lewis said, shut up and don't be an ass. <laughs> that is a good one. Well, Matt, what are some of your closing thoughts? How would you actually rate this book among the others that you've read before? And please don't be swayed by the fact that I know that it's his best book. <laughs> Using my rubric of uh, truth in a book, which is also why I love The Great Divorce too so much, like it, it meaning like being obvious, coming at you, hitting you. Um, I give it a ten out of ten. Mm. Seriously, yeah. Um, I, I even even going back, I remember pretty distinctly our various conversations we've had with this over chair, the voices Don Shredder, and a lot of great wisdom in there too. But to, there wasn't like. We could have continued talking for another hour and a half. I think we're all a little bit tired right now, but like that, that could have, we could have continued for so long because there's just so much in here. And there was these last three chapters, there's a couple of times I stopped you in the last one to say one more, but it was like three other points. I just kind of like, like brush bikes. Like we've already hit enough truth for one episode. I mean, there's just so much in this. It's incredible. I remember in Four Loves, Lewis says that for the critical mind, the challenge is not to praise or dispraise, but to find and describe. And I propose, even though it will lead to the end of some of your endless ribbing uh, and our endless battle, Lewis called Faces Far and Away my best book. And let me propose that we talk about what's our favorite book, right? Mm -hmm. And so I don't know that necessarily The Great Divorce is his best book, but I don't fault anybody for having it be their favorite book. And when people ask me what my favorite Lewis book is, more often than not, um, my answer is Collected Letters, Volume 3, or 
Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I mean, I think that Tilia Faces is his best, but I think that this kind of, in the spirit of going on, you know, arguing about things, you know, it's my favorite <laughs> or it's my favorite now, or it wasn't my favorite, but it certainly suits me the best right now. And so we can't put this to rest. This is like when two people do a <laughs> boxing match and they need to fake all of the fights prior to the match. We can't like resolve this. This is, this, we got to keep this suspense going here. <laughs> That's called wrestling. <laughs> That's not boxing. <laughs> and oh. and I have discovered more about it uh, through speaking about it with the three of you. And so it's become all the more richer uh, just because of our conversation about it together. Well, Kristen, I'm going to give you the final word, final thoughts, final wrap up. Well, I just think this is a beautiful way uh, to remember how much, um, how much God is at work in our lives. And, and that's the, the encouragement that I take in the good times and the bad, when I screw up royally, uh, and when I get it right, um, when I'm humble and when I'm proud. I mean, he's faithful and he's with me every step of the way. And he comforts and encourages when we're in those moments of fear and doubt. He's there, a loving presence. When we need that extra motivation, when we need that discipline, he provides that too. I mean, his grace is sufficient. It covers every need of our lives and is leading us and guiding us to a glorious future, our true home mm. and uh, our true north. And so um, I just, I love this book. It's, it's one of my all-time favorites mm. up there with all of the books that I've ever read. <laughs> and I'm just uh, delighted to have had the chance to share a little bit of this conversation with you. Thank you so much. Mm. Our true selves are indeed waiting for us in him. Well, the hour has struck. That was the bell for final drinks. We hope you all enjoyed the Narnia book for this season. And if you want more Narnia, the Lamppost Listener podcast is just about to start the next book, The Magician's Nephew. Thanks again to Kristen for joining us on this two-parter series through The Horse and His Boy. Thanks to all of our listeners, our patron supporters, particularly our top-tier supporters, Angela, Deborah One, Deborah Two, Marvin, Joelle, Thomas, Anania Mouse, Bill, Joanna, Snort, <laughs> Bud, Shane, also John, Thomas, <laughs> John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David, and Rowdy. We now have over three hundred episodes in our back catalogue, interviewing a vast number of authors and scholars, as well as working through works such as *Mere Christianity*, *The Great Divorce*, *Till We Have Faces*, *The Scrutic Letters*, and now *The Four Loves*. So please go and listen to some of them if you've only just started to join us. And join us next time when Dr. Devon Brown will be returning to the show to talk about the charges of sexism and racism in Narnia. So please join us then when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. 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 Cheers.